great new song and a great prayer. Uh, I don't know if, I hope it's your prayer, it's my prayer this morning because I'm in what I believe is perhaps the toughest passage in the Bible to preach in 2019 and uh, I need the Spirit's help as I do. I I believe it is the the toughest passage to preach uh, today because it's a passage that has been uh, misused by many uh, manipulative preachers who have sought to uh, abuse people with its teachings. And uh, there may very well be one or more people here this morning who has been on the receiving end of this passage's misuse. And if that's you, I... Uh, I am genuinely sorry, and uh, I need you to know it's not okay. Uh, it's, not, it's not right. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, one uh, prominent prosperity teacher uh, taught in people in her book, give God $10 seed money and expect to get $1,000 in return. Or give God $1,000 and expect to receive 100000 Uh if you've been on the receiving end of that kind of teaching, you need to know it's wrong. It's, it's not okay to use God's word like that. Uh, another prominent prosperity teacher said this, Poverty is from the devil, and God wants all Christians prosperous. Money always follows righteousness. When you don't give money, it shows that you have the devil's nature. If you've heard that kind of teaching, it, it's, it's abusive. It is wrong. It's not okay to use God's word like that. And, and it makes it difficult, frankly, for us to talk about money. Uh, difficult for us to talk about it anywhere, even more difficult to talk about it in church. And the fact is, even before the pre- prosperity teachers arrived on the scene, we weren't all that comfortable about talking about money anyway, right? It's not a popular topic to begin with. And yet, it, it's in the scriptures And God has spoken on it, he has taught about it, and if we ignore what he said, then we are ultimately ignoring him. And so dive in, we will. Uh, We're in a series called The God Who's Worthy of Our Best, and uh, today our our theme really is testing God's generosity. But you won't be getting any tips on how to get a Rolls Royce from God, or how to to earn a new promotion by just... uh, Uh, getting enough seed money into the offering plate. We won't be talking about those kinds of things. But what we will be talking is what the scriptures teach about how money money relates to our relationship with God. Uh, The part that it plays in how we relate to him and how he views it. And and as importantly, how he seeks to release the the grip and control that it has on us, right? Uh, the, The... the power often that money, uh, particularly in our culture today, has on all of us. The, the stresses it, that it causes and the, the, the drive that it creates is often uh, an unhealthy reality in our lives, and God seeks to do something about it. He seeks to lead us into contentment. So, uh, again, what I'm going to say is too important for you to take it Take my word for it. I'd like you to see it in the scriptures for yourselves. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. In the Pew Bibles in front of you, it's on on page 754. And I'm going to read Malachi chapter 3 from verse 6 down to verse 12. Malachi 3, 6 to 12. 
It says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I'll rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of God. Now, this, is, this passage starts in an interesting place. And if you were just to read the first section, you might think it doesn't even appear that God is talking about money. And yet he is getting in there through a uh, dealing with something that is pressing on the people. See, the people at this point are are feeling stress about their money and their economic situation, and God is going to address it. The, the stress that they're feeling about their finances has created some tension in their relationship with him. And, and, and it has impacted them. And, and what he says essentially is that if it feels like I've turned my back on you because of what you see happening in your circumstances, then maybe you're the one that's facing the wrong direction. God's not the one who's turned away. He's the unchanging one. So just as we, as we look at the text and try and understand what's happening and why he opens up with this, uh, uh, his unchangeless uh, character, uh, we're, we're recognizing that the people he's addressing feel like God has turned his back on them. It feels like God has abandoned them and left them. And the reality is that we often feel the same thing. In verse 10, you're going to see that he talks about opening the windows of heaven. He's going to talk about that because those windows of heaven haven't opened up for a very long time for the people of Israel at this period. They have gone through periods of drought. They have known famine. Their crops are starving for lack of rain. Then in verse 11, we're going to see that God talks about rebuking the devourer who is destroying the fruits of their soil. So not only were their crops failing to produce, they they were failing to receive much rain, but the little crops that were coming up were then being devoured by insects and parasites. And they're feeling the pain of that. Life was hard and money was tight, and it felt like God had turned his back on them. But God wants them to know that he's not the one that's walked away. He's not the one that's changed. He's not the one who's turned his back on them because he's the changeless one. That's why he says what he does in verse 6. He says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. He's saying, if it feels like I'm more distant, that our relationship is cool, if it feels like I've walked away and you are all alone, 
It's not because I've gone anywhere. You're the ones who have turned from me, he says to them. You've gone and chased after the world, and now you're feeling the consequences of that, and you're thinking that it's my fault. You're thinking that I've somehow brought this on you. And we've got to just pause and say those are hard words. Those are painful things to read. They're painful things to hear. And yet somehow we still need to let them sink in. Because what we're not saying is that all of the difficult things in our lives are a result of our sin and God's discipline. We're not saying that. Some of the difficult things that godly people go through are a part of what we saw last week. God's refining process. He's maturing us. He's developing our faith. He's, he's helping us to grow up and learn to depend upon him. And, and so we can welcome those difficult circumstances in our lives, recognizing this is God's grace. He's doing good in our lives. But at the same time, we need to recognize what this passage is ta- saying, which is sometimes some of the painful circumstances in our lives are a result of our foolish decisions to chase after the world and instead of trusting in our God. We, we've got to recognize sometimes that's what's, what's going on. And he's going to address that here because they're thinking, God's just out to get me. God's just, he just t- turned his back. He's different now, but he's not different now. They have turned their backs on him and they're feeling the pain of that. So God makes it clear that they have to return. And you'll see that in verse 7. He says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. It's the language there reminds us of the picture of the, the prodigal son. Jesus' story of that younger son who, who just got a little tired of, of living with his father and he wanted his inheritance now. So he said, give it to me now. And he took it and he went as far away as he could so he could he could blow it and his father would never see how he spent it. He comes to the end of that. He wastes all of, the, all of his inheritance. Life is tough. He's hungry. And he re- realizes, comes to his senses and says, even, my, even the servants in my father's house live better than I do. And he made the decision to return. And when he did, we were, we were told by Jesus that while he was still a long way off, the father had been waiting for him all along. The father had been looking down that road. And when he saw him, he went to, to greet him. He hugged him. He kissed him. He showered him with blessing. And that's exactly what's going on here in this passage. Return to me and I will return to you. It was a great invitation. The problem is that the people in Malachi's day had the same problem that we have We think, great invitation, God, but why are you telling me? It's those, like, it's not like I'm an atheist or something. It's, surely this is a a message for the heathen. Surely this is for people that don't know anything about God. Like, I I actually show up for worship when it's convenient. Like, I I think about you sometimes, God. Like, it's not like you're completely off the radar. And yet... They were not in the place that God would have them to be. In verse 7, God explains their situation. He says, 
From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Yeah, you've shown up every once in a while. I'll acknowledge that. But when it comes to full obedience to my word, not so good. It, it, it really hasn't been great. If you read the verse, you, you see he refers to the days of your fathers. What, what, what's clear there is they have become so used to ignoring God and his commands that it's become normal for them. Like, I'm just doing what I saw my dad do. And, and my grandfather, like, this is just the way it's been, God. We give you, like, we give you a little bit. We, we kind of think about you from time to time. But, like, we're not, like, full out, like, sold out for you or anything. Like, we're not. But that's just the way it's always been. What, what's, what's the big deal? And, and what you realize is they're facing what we face and which every generation faces. All of us receive patterns of sin. We receive patterns of, of, of wonderful things as well. But we also receive patterns of sin from our family, patterns of sin from our culture, patterns of our sin from unhealthy churches. We, we, we are a product of having received the, the, the sins that have been handed down to us. And while God acknowledges that, he also says, you need to deal with that. I want you to return to me. And it's with the promise that when you do, I will return to you. And so it, it, it's a recognition that each of us has to, to, to examine our own lives. Not just, hey, am, am I doing the same thing that my parents were doing and my grandparents were doing? No, have I lined my life up next to God's word and acknowledge the areas where I need to, to return to the Lord, where I need to repent and go the other way? And it's with a recognition, because he's telling this to the the religious people, the people that did kind of show up for worship every once in a while and, and did think about God every once in a while, it's with a re recognition, yes, even religious people need to repent. Even church people need to repent. Even pastors need to repent. Each of us needs to put our life next to God's word and recognize areas where we have strayed from the Lord, where we have cut him out of the picture and acknowledge that and return. And so that, that's, that returning to him is where the passage turns next. Because in God's mind, that, that returning to him is a returning with all of who we are. Real repentance involves, as we shall see, financial repentance. A reorienting our, of our mind of how we relate to money and how that money is a, a part of how we relate to our, our God. Real repentance involves financial repentance. Now we've seen in verse 5, God graciously invites the people to return to him, but they don't get it. They, they, they don't really see what, what it is and how it is that they should be returning. They're, they're like, how are we supposed to do that? And so God spells it out for them in verse 8. It says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You're cursed. With a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, we've often said that in Scripture, they didn't use like bold typeface or underlining or any of that. They, when they wanted to stress something, they repeated it. 
you, you see a repetition of words. And so in verse 7, you see the word return, return, return. It's repeated three times. Once you get the message. This is, this is his message. He wants you to return. Then in verse 8, how are we going to do that? You see the word rob, 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 rob. Repeated four times. Again, for emphasis, wanting you to see that, that this is at the heart of his message for the people. What was going wrong was the people figured as long as God had some part in their lives, God should be pretty happy with that. He, he, should, he should be happy with, with having the, uh, some small part in their thinking, some small part in their decision-making, some, some reasonable part in, in a portion of their lives. And yet it becomes clear that God wants to be central in all of our lives. And what the people were doing was saying, look, times are tough, money's tight, God really hasn't been coming through for me like I thought he would. I'm kind of disappointed with him in, in a number of different ways. And so, so I realize God's word says to give him 10% of my income, but given all that's going on and kind of how he's been, been uh, falling down on his part of the deal, uh, surely he'd be happy with a couple bills in the offering plate every once in a while. That's kind of what was going on in their mind. And so God responds to them and says, you're actually robbing me. I'm actually not okay with this. As we've seen already in the series and as we will continue to see, not tithing was not the only thing that the, that the people in, in Malachi's day were guilty of. It, it wasn't like this was the only sin. Interestingly, though, this is, when he says, return to me, when he says, repent, he's, he's going to be very specific and say, and this is, this is one way that you can show me that it's real. It's not like uh, tithing is, is the only thing on God's radar, but it does give a unique window into a person's heart and what, how, they, how they relate to him, what they think of him. See, when the people were bringing blind sheep and those goats with the broken legs, everybody could see that they weren't giving God their best, right? Like when, when, when Joe's coming along with his, his, his sheep with, the, with the, the leg kind of flopping in the wind because it's, it's broken, like they know, okay, well, Joe's not really giving God his best. That's clear. But nobody knows what Joe's income is. Nobody knows what, what, what the, exactly how much he gave. So they're not able to actually calculate the tithe. It's on the honor system, Right? They, they, nobody really knows, other than Joe and God, nobody knows exactly what percentage of, the, of his income that he's actually giving. And Joe's figuring, well, this would be fine. God probably doesn't even notice. God probably doesn't even care. Not that big a deal. And God makes it clear he does notice. He does care. And it is kind of a big deal. He says, Joe... You're robbing me. Richard Brownstein said something I think is helpful here. He said, it's possible to give without loving, but it is impossible to love without giving. Is that interesting? Our giving is an expression of our love. It's it's an expression of how important God is in our lives and conversely, how much of a power money has over our lives. 
It, it tells a lot about how we feel about him and how we feel about money. The problem is that nothing grips us tighter than money. Nothing can be more controlling in our lives. Uh, that's why Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What he's saying there is that when we give money control over, li- over our lives, it is a very cruel and demanding master. It is a jealous mistress. It wants more and more control. It offers us security. Hey, trust in me. I'll take care of you. I I will work things out for you. That's what money says. And in return, we think, yeah, that makes sense. I don't think God's, surely God couldn't solve this thing, but maybe a little more money could. And, And so we put our trust in money and it demands something of us. It demands our allegiance and it will suck our the, the heart and vitality out of our relationship with him. And the p- point of the tithe, the point of God saying, set apart for me 10% was not like, I, I, don't, have any, I don't have any money. I, like I'm, I'm, I'm going to be broke unless everybody gives me more money. Like God doesn't need our money. The point is that when we recognize through that tithe, through that first 10%, that He's the one who, who has given it all to us. He's the one who owns it, all to, uh, owns it all. He is the one who has entrusted it to us to manage according to his purposes, that when we do that, it frees us from the control that money would otherwise have over us. It, it ceases to be our master, and we receive in return a far more gracious Lord. I think that's why Billy Graham once said, if a person gets his attitude toward money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area in his life. Do you think money is that, that important? I mean, this is, this is Billy Graham saying, and it's not me, it's not the Bible. But I, I, I don't think he's exaggerating here. It's not like money is everything, but if you break the power that money has on you and your relationship to it and its connection with your relationship with God, it will help you break the power of so many other things that, that are, have the same power to otherwise control you. Do you need to return to God in your attitude towards money? Have you been robbing God? Did you assume, assume that God didn't notice? Or that maybe God just didn't care that much. He cares because he cares about you. He he notices because he notices our heart. And he knows knows that it is a thing that will otherwise control and crush our heart. Real repentance involves financial repentance. So we're saying that God is seeking our repentance. He wants us to return to him in this whole area of our finances. But when we're saying that, we're not saying that he's like a, an angry Canada revenue agent who is approaching someone who hasn't paid their taxes, right? He says, you're robbing me. But at the same time, he's not, he's not coming to us as the, 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 the agent trying to, trying to collect. As we see even in this passage, The God who calls us to financial repentance 
is a God who is more generous than we could ever be. A God who is more gracious and more giving. He promises blessing and grace. He gives of Himself. The God who calls us to give is not a demanding God. He's a generous God. More generous than we could ever be. In verse 10, God makes the now famous statement, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. This verse doesn't teach you how to get a Rolls Royce. But it is an invitation to taste of God's generosity. He asks us to put him to the test. And the promise is to meet our needs. He will open up the heavens, meaning rain's going to come. Your your crops will flourish. It's a promise to respond to us. He's not promising lavish riches, but he does talk about blessing us until there is no need. In verse 11, God promises to reverse the curses that have come upon the land. And then in verse 12, he promises a restoration of his blessing. Theirs will be a land of delight and nations will do what they they were promised they they would, would happen since that promise was given to Abraham. Theirs would be a land of blessing. The idea is that when we're willing to stop finding our security and our hope and our provision in our money, and instead put our trust in the God who would provide for us, the God who gives us hope, the God who is our security, that our hearts will know peace, our hearts will know rest, and we will experience the blessing of God. A God who promises to meet our needs. The question that people usually ask at this point is this tithe thing, does this apply to Christians? And it's very curious to me, every time I've heard that question, I've only heard it asked one way. Like people ask, does the tithe apply to Christians? But I've never heard someone say, does the tithe still apply to Christians? Or can I give a lot more than that? I've never heard people ask it that way. They always ask it the other way. Because at first I think, is this a question of hermeneutics? And I'm coming to the conclusion, no, it's, it's, I think it's a question of the heart. Because they always ask it the other way. I know it says 10% in the Old Testament, but surely just a few bills in the offering plate, that should be enough, right? Surely God could be happy with, with much, much less than, than 10%. That, just the question should be very curious to us, right? It should be strange to our ears. Because... When you get to the new covenant, guess what? More blessing, more forgiveness, more assurance, more security, more hope, more promises. It would be very odd that there would be less response. It just doesn't make sense. You get to the New Testament and you see the giving of Jesus Christ. Did Jesus give 10%? You come to to a verse like 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and it gives Jesus a standard for giving. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's how Jesus gave. So are you saying, Paul, that's the new rule? Everybody's got to become poor? No, that's not what we're saying. 
It's not a new rule. It's just saying that Jesus surpasses the tithe. Jesus wasn't looking to hold back and just give us a little bit. And the giving of, the new, of Christians in the New Testament reflects that. New Testament giving surpasses the Old Testament tithe. It surpasses it in, in several important ways. 2 Corinthians 9.7 says that people should not give reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He, he cares about the heart. He wants there to be some joy in our giving. Not just the, the reluctant Old Testament, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you this, but he wants, he wants the attitude, the heart, the joy, the overflow of thankfulness. I don't like to, to, to drag Greek lessons into my messages very often, but this is one of my favorite Greek words. Uh, the word for cheerfully here is the word hilaros. God wants giving that is hilarious, that there is joy because we have experienced something that is so moving and so powerful, we can't help with a smile on our face Beaming, we give back to God, and our joy in giving surpasses the Old Testament tithe. The New Testament giving also surpasses the tithe and how radical it is. Acts chapter 4, verses 34 and 35 describes the early church. It says this, As many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each and as any had need. This isn't a group of people saying, so how, how little can I give to God so that, you know, that, that he doesn't get angry with me? It's also not setting up a rule that everyone who becomes a Christian now has to sell everything that they've got. It, it, that, that wasn't happening either. But the people had seen the love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to provide a gift that was now made available to them free of charge, and they responded. They responded radically. It moved them. It shaped them. And, and so they started doing things that kind of other people are saying, that's kind of crazy. That's a little bit overboard. New Testament giving surpasses the tithe and how radical it is. Paul goes on to describe the giving of other churches this way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part. Here you have people in extreme poverty. And what had taken place in their heart was that they were, there was such joy and overflowing gratefulness for the gift that they had received in Jesus Christ that something was just coming out of them. When the offering plate came around, they were begging earnestly, bring it back here again. I, I, I want to do more. It, it says that they gave according to their means and even, even beyond that. If we're, if we're honest, looking at the text there, it may have not been all that wise what they were it, what they were doing was bordering bordering on foolishness here it was over the top they were going above and beyond and they 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 may have uh, they they may have overdone it but paul mentions them to say this is what happens when the grace of god grips a person 
They, they want to do more. They, there is an overflow of their heart. And notice the joy. They're not, they're not looking around saying, like, can we get one of those big checks to, to, for our offering plate? Because we want people to see what an amazing thing. That's not what's going on here. There's overflowing joy in Christ they want to give. It doesn't sound to me like New Testament giving has been dialed down. It, it just doesn't. I, I, I don't see that. It's more cheerful than the Old Testament. It's more radical than the Old Testament tithe. It's more sacrificial than the Old Testament tithe. And in, in Grace Baptist Church, we are blessed to have some hilarious givers. We, we are. People who give cheerfully and joyfully, who earnestly beg to, to, to participate. People who give radically and sacrificially, and the church is blessed for. We also have many people who don't give anything at all. And, and we have everything in between. And so as we look at a passage like we look at today, we each ask ourselves in this whole area of finances, is God calling me to return to him? Is he calling me to return to him in this area, to give myself to him and to make financial repentance a part of my repentance? The God who issues that invitation to us is the God who meets us in our generosity and says, I'll return to you. I'm the one who promises to meet your needs. I give you security and peace, joy in your heart, a joy that would overflow, and the security to know that you're mine. And I cared about your heart, and that's why, that's why he brings it up to us in this passage. But ultimately, it's our heart that he's after. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you never change. And that gives us hope that we can return to you no matter what we've done. Forgive us for ways that we've given in to the world's values regarding money. And give us the courage to test your generosity with our obedience in giving to you. Father, if we've become reluctant... Help us to be cheerful in our giving. If we become indulgent, help us to be generous in our giving. More than anything, we ask that we might glory in the generous gift of eternal life that Jesus gave up everything to provide us with. We praise you for that gift. In Jesus' name.